0: Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is the first episode of The Decibel of 2022. Happy New Year. The Winter Olympics are coming up fast. They're set to start February 4th. That's just six months after the last Olympics ended. And at those summer games, American gymnast Simone Biles brought the world's attention to athletes' mental health when she withdrew from most of the competition. Olympians are celebrated for what their bodies can do. Their strength, their speed, and athletic ability take them to the top level of their sport. But behind the scenes, a surprising number of Canadian athletes are struggling. The Globe's investigative reporter, Grant Robertson, and sports reporter, Rachel Brady, spent six months investigating eating disorders among Olympians. They'll talk about how sports science can be misused to encourage disordered eating, and the athletes they spoke to who shared their stories. This is The Decibel. Grant and Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Grant, what made you want to look into this issue of eating disorders and Olympians in the first place?
1: It's an interesting story. Uh, I actually got talking to an olympian who i had covered through several olympics and knew a bit of their background and um we got talking about some of the challenges that athletes face behind the scenes the kind of things that canadians don't see when they're watching on tv and where that conversation led was to the prevalence of eating disorders on this athlete's team uh she had said you know on my team 80% of the team struggled with eating disorders and that number really shocked me and it really caught me off guard and uh, and from there we got talking about just the sheer prevalence of it and uh, we started reaching out to other athletes to sort of see what was happening in their programs and in their sports and we started to hear you know similar stories back that this is much more of this goes on than than people know or people see.
0: And just to be clear, Grant, the Globe is protecting some of these athletes' identities because we don't want to reveal who they are?
1: Correct. Some athletes were very frank with us and very open to talk to us about it. Um, some of them didn't want to uh, have their name attached because, you know, this is a very sensitive topic and really could affect their careers.
0: Rachel, you've covered sports for years. And so can I ask, what did you find out? How how wide-ranging actually is this issue?
2: Well, the data is really hard to come by. Anyone will tell you that. Um, so a lot of what is was currently available was either anecdotal or the research has been done in a very narrow kind of siloed sort of way, whether it's by, you know, a specific country, um, NCAA women's sport or certain amateur sport in certain places. So it's never been really looked at in Canada anyway. It's never been really looked at across country um, in a a more deep way um, to put some numbers around it. So we found a a U of T study that had within it a couple of questions on eating disorder, and it, it pointed to that sort of one in five number. And even when you look at that, it showed that such a small percentage of that group was actually getting treated.
1: Yeah, that study was very important because, you know, even though it was one in five that reported having disordered eating or eating disorders. Only 4% were actually diagnosed with it or treated.
0: And Grant, so for this investigation for the Globe, uh, you spoke to an athlete named Erin Wilson, uh, who was one of Canada's top synchronized swimmers uh, in in 2011. Why did you want to tell her story?
3: When I joined the national team, um, I was probably, I think I was 19. Um, That first year, it kind of completely changed. Like, the the first competition I went to, (laughs) representing, like, that canada like the senior team my coach at the time like at one point she stopped practice and realized that we hadn't been weighed in two weeks and she like literally stopped practice we had to um scour our bags like we were literally like scouring our our swimming bags to find change because the only scale she could find was like coin operated and so we literally had to pay for ourselves to like weigh ourselves so that she knew what weights you are it was like the first kind of time it hit me that like Oh, like you're serious about like you actually care about this. Like, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, like there's there's a lawsuit that Aaron's part of against Canadian artistic swimming, and the allegations in that lawsuit are of abuse and maltreatment uh, against uh, swimmers in that program, and they're just allegations at this point. It's not in the courts yet. They haven't been tested, but what they're alleging is that there's a pattern um, within that program of situations where swimmers were basically forced to lose weight or given weight targets that really didn't have any bearing on their body composition or their height. We would
3: get weighed once a week and they would like line us up like one at a time and you had to like get weighed before you go in the pool every Wednesday. Those, those Wednesdays were just very anxiety driven for me um, and it got to a point where I couldn't even like look at the number on the scale without like having like a full like anxiety attack, basically, I would get weighed, but I would never, like, I would purposely like not look at those numbers because it was just like pretty much traumatic every
0: time. Um, and so, it also and like, in synchronized swimming, there is something called target competition weights. Grant, can you explain what that is?
1: That's the number uh, that swimmers on Aaron Wilson's team were given when they arrived at the program. Um, the swimmers alleged that they were given this number, and it was, uh, you have to hit this. And the bigger problem was it was tied to their contracts. So it, it was actually your contract weight. And if you strayed too far from that, they had a three-strike system. So if you you got one warning if you're too high above it, and a second warning. And if there was a third warning, you could risk losing your spot on the team. Now, it became an even bigger problem, uh, they alleged, because... A second contract actually said if you are cut from the team and you leave the program, you might have to pay back the funding uh, and the costs associated with you being on the team. So in Aaron Wilson's case, it was estimated to be about fifty thousand uh, dollars when she was removed from the national team uh, because she was above this number.
3: When they removed me from the team, they like didn't they're obviously smart enough to not just say like you're too fat to be on the team. Like they basically told me that I was like under emotional distress. And like, they were concerned about my mental health. And so that's why they were removing me from the team. But then to get back on the team, the main criteria was that
0: I lose weight. So there is a proposed class action lawsuit against Canadian artistic swimming, which governs the Synchro program. What's been their response to this whole thing?
1: Yeah, so when the allegations first came out... Artistic Swimming launched an investigation into problems of the program. They brought in a third-party investigator that they appointed themselves uh, to investigate the problems. And in March, the head of Artistic Swimming issued a statement saying, you know, she was deeply troubled by, by the allegations, but that the investigator had found, you know, not sufficient evidence of a problem with the, in the program. The problem with that is we haven't seen the results of this investigation. It's being kept private. So we don't know you know, what's in there and, uh, and what came out of it. Artistic Swimming uh, sent us a statement for this article saying, you know, the program is still very much based on athlete health and proper nutrition. So they're maintaining that uh, nothing went wrong inside the program.
0: Yeah. And it's I mean, interesting we're talking about individual athletes here, but also the team as a whole. Can you speak a little bit to, I guess, how this plays out um, amongst people?
2: I remember a psychologist and a and a dietitian team that treat athletes saying that these things spread in group settings. So when you have a group of athletes who either, you know, travel, compete, train together, spend a lot of time together, they they start to mimic one another's behaviors. They start to notice what, you know, what that athlete is or isn't eating anymore, how that one was celebrated or given a lot of praise or attention from a coach, um and how that received uh congratulations from the group. And a lot of the athletes have described that feeling of pleasing the coach and receiving praise in that setting as like intoxicating um, and actually addictive. To want to feel that all the time and to have it, um, even though it's short lived, right? Because you'll have to step on the scale again another time and maybe the news won't be as satisfying in your mind. But that the behaviors can really start to, to shape.
1: One of the stories on, on what Rachel's saying there, one of the stories that Erin Wilson told us was a story about how her coach at the time um, allegedly placed so much importance on weight that if one of the swimmers lost a, a considerable amount of weight or hit their targets, all the other swimmers would have to gather around to practice it and, and they'd all clap for the for the one swimmer.
3: This girl like literally lost, I think, fifteen pounds in the summer and like her ribs were like literally like sticking out of her skin. And the only thing my coach could say was like, isn't it great how how amazing she looks? Like we should all give her a round of applause. Like she finally hit her goal weight.
0: So, Rachel, we've been talking about synchronized swimming here, but maybe let's broaden this out to athletes and, and sports more broadly. Does, does weight really matter for, for athletes to be successful?
2: It can be hard to ignore it in some sports, right? When you ask that, I, I think instantly of Kirsten Mortowers, who we interviewed for the story, who said her whole identity was kind of wrapped in, in being tiny pear girl. That could be thrown through the air in pairs figure skating, and so you learn to see how someone's physique can really um, become their identity in their sport, right, or, or their role in the, in the, the sport that they are competing in. And so, in some sports, it has become so important in the minds of those athletes that I need to be light. Um, I can go faster and longer in an endurance manner if I'm lighter. You know the the idea if you're going to gain weight, it it should be lean muscle mass and nothing else is is really ingrained for a lot of athletes in a lot of sports that gaining fat or bringing up your body fat percentage, especially when all these numbers are available to you, um, can be really really like an eventful moment to step on a scale or to look at your anthropometric stats and to see that, right? But in some sports, uh, you know, if you're looking at something like ski jumping, or you're looking at the weight classes in wrestling, or taekwondo, or a lot of these combat sports, you can't strip away the weight from that. But you can make ethical decisions about which weight class an athlete should be in. Are you forcing them to go into a weight class that they just physically don't thrive in because they've had to lose too much weight or they've had to gain too much weight to be in it? So, you know, as, as some of the scientists told us that that work with the athletes, like the duty of care can sometimes be really pushed and you, you've got to have the supports there to make sure the athletes are mentally well um, if they do have to be pushed to the edge of, of having to lose weight.
1: I think there's sort of this reckoning in in sports going on where, you know, they can collect data on everything. And you really have to look at, okay, well, what is a good metric that actually is linked to performance? And what is a metric that is not? You know, one of the experts we, we talked to talked about, you know, measuring thigh circumference in middle distance runners. And okay, just because you can do that, well, why would you? It's largely irrelevant to the outcome. And so, you know, getting rid of metrics that are gathered just for the sake of gathering them and, and really focusing on ones that actually do affect performance.
0: And so, Grant, um, in your investigation, you talk about how the term sports science is often used to kind of legitimize telling athletes that they need to lose this weight. What did you find out about how science is misused here in this way?
1: Well, I think in a lot of sports, you know, over the past few decades, we've seen an explosion in sports science and data, and you know all the, all these different you know forms of expertise and you know uh, parsing things about the body, and in some cases, as is alleged in the uh, synchronized swimming lawsuit, you know the swimmers say, you know they were told to lose a lot of weight, and they would ask why, and the answer was just well sports science, trust in sports science, but they they suspect those numbers were pulled really out of thin air.
0: Throughout your investigation here, the issue of eating disorders and and weight, is this something that affects both men and women equally? What what have you found in in that respect?
1: The prevalence of this in men is really a hidden phenomenon. You know, anecdotally, if you look at cases, overwhelmingly, you see female athletes, you know, talking about eating disorders and self-identifying. And the problem in men is largely hidden. And researchers have found this too. The men don't show up in the stats, but when you talk to athletes in national programs they talk about you know seeing uh, male athletes struggle just as much
2: there have been some sports where it has athletes have spoken a little bit more um In other parts of the world um, in men's cycling they've spoken about it and in men's figure skating you know you've seen people speak about it certainly um, about and those are both different related things you know either being very slender or being slim for endurance reasons Um, but it can be obviously super super costly to be that slim right one of the things we discovered was that your bone density actually suffers Um, And so, you know, you might not notice it necessarily in a cyclist is how I was told, um, because the cyclist is kind of protected by the bike. They're not having that repeated pounding of running, let's say. But when there's a crash, that's where you're going to see the injuries.
0: Yeah, this kind of idea that it's a little bit hidden here, and this might be a a good way to to kind of talk about the misconceptions we have around eating disorders and athletes. Can I ask, like, what did you learn about the misconceptions that we all might have when it comes to athletes and, and eating disorders and how we think about eating disorders?
2: Yeah, so many things actually that we learned. One is that, you know, if you're looking like I suspect maybe that athlete um, has an issue, but oh, I must be wrong because they're not extremely skinny and they're not emaciated. Um, So if that's one of the signs that that coaches or um, trainers or, you know, people in the training environment, fellow athletes are looking for, they might not see it.
1: One of the big misconceptions I, I think we saw as well was um, the causes of eating disorders within elite athletes. You know, we, we talked to some athletes who the eating disorder was sort of, you know, inflicted upon them by bad coaching. Uh, you know, the coach wanting them to drop weight unhealthily or in a hurry. You know, those, those cases, those are the ones we normally think of. Or the other cases where the athlete might be doing it because they feel pressure and they, and they hide it, but they do it on their own. The ones that I didn't expect to see were the ones that happen accidentally. So an athlete is is essentially, you know, training so hard and, you know, also wanting to eat less and manage their caloric intake, but they essentially out train what they're taking in in fuel. And that can lead you into uh, a really serious uh, condition
0: there is kind of a broader societal preoccupation, of course, right, around weight and specifically with fat. So in your investigation here, what have experts told you about how this plays into the pressures that eventually do get put on these elite athletes?
1: There's this pressure to look a certain way, you know, especially the ones, you know, figure skaters who are wearing, you know, very revealing costumes or divers who are wearing very small bathing suits. There's not only the pressure to perform, but there's a pressure to look like your sport essentially there's a misconception that this only happens in aesthetic sports but we heard the same stories from cyclists and you know a ski cross racer who said you know I didn't think I looked like an athlete and regardless of the fact she was very good at what she did one of the top in the country but she put that pressure on herself that I am an athlete therefore I must look like an athlete and so you've got these sort of um these image pressures that weigh on on athletes very much like they weigh on people and that can have a really damaging effect.
2: We also heard that wit feels to be judged um, positively or negatively by you know people in the public basically on their social media feed that people feel that it's their place to make comments on someone's body uh, on social media and what that feels like and there's a bit of a policing there in some sense especially of female bodies and what females are eating. And that there's, you know, seems to be this idea that you shouldn't be posting something of, you know, a, a slender female athlete eating. Like people don't want to see that and they need to comment on it or, or um, kind of reprimand you and remind you that you better be slender and that you better be thinking about your sport and not enjoying yourself.
0: I guess what's happening now that these things are starting to come out, how are athletic programs starting to remove this idea or, or maybe change these ideas of, of how they deal with weight and performance here.
2: Yeah, some of the steps we see that have been taken, and a big one is group weigh ins. You know, so removing that step of putting the whole team together to weigh each other or to take measurements or to be weighed in front of your teammates or even to have um, a secondary teammate like a partner who stands there and writes everything down. Uh, on a clipboard while well, one person that seemed like maybe a step to to make it a little bit more private uh, but even that can be really um, make the athlete feel very self-conscious you know a lot of the experts we talked to stressed that the coach should not maybe even have that information it shouldn't be the the keeper of that information and they shouldn't be using it in a you know a punitive way or or a motivational way for that matter that it should be done by A professional in that space who knows how to take those measurements sensitively. And then I think there's some things in in the language as well, that the language should be posted more towards, you know, if changes in your body are happening, it should be for this performance goal and not for this uh, actual aesthetic goal.
3: Yeah. And I don't think that are necessarily false metrics, but I think that there's like, as a cost benefit analysis, I I don't think I don't want to like discount science. And I think there's a lot of value in performance science, but I think that there's, you kind of have to think about that person as a whole and like as a as a human and not necessarily like as a machine that you can, it's not a car that you can like adjust to make it go at an optimal speed.
0: And how is Aaron Aaron Wilson, this athlete you were talking to, how is Aaron doing today?
1: She uh, has been diagnosed with PTSD because of her ordeal. That's how traumatic they say their experiences were on the team and and to this day, she still has a, has a hard time talking about the eating disorder that she developed while trying to drop weight and essentially starving herself. Um, what's also interesting about Erin is she's gone on to study abuse in athletes at University of Toronto. So she's becoming a researcher of this phenomenon and an advocate for um, you know, athlete rights and things like that. And so the study we mentioned earlier that looked at the prevalence of eating disorders, Erin uh, was one of the authors of that. Uh, That was part of her research into national team athletes. And so she's very involved in it. But when you talk to her, you can tell her time on the team still weighs pretty heavily upon her.
0: Grant and Rachel, thank you so much for both taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. I'm Mainika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Rachel Brady and Grant Robertson. You can find their complete investigation into eating disorders among elite athletes at globenmail.com. Tell us what stories matter to you. Email us at thedecibel at GlobeAndMail.com. And if you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at MainicaRW. If you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.